Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Dr. John Lyons. He's a professor of health management and policy and the director of the Center of Innovation in Population Health at the University of Kentucky. Uh, After receiving a doctorate in clinical psychology, John has founded the Mental Health Services and Policy Program at Northwestern University, uh, being the inaugural chair of child and youth mental health at the University of Ottawa, and a senior policy fellow at the University of Chicago. He has designed and implemented outcomes management approaches in all 50 states and on every continent except Antarctica. Welcome, John. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate you uh, inviting me onto your podcast. Absolutely. Um, You have developed a comprehensive multi-level approach to system management called Transformational Collaborative Outcomes Management, TCOM. Yes. Uh, TCOM involves using shared visioning assessment to manage conflict in large systems simultaneously at the person, program, and system levels. And within TCOM, you have developed uh, what you call the community metrics theory of measurement to support consensus-based assessments to improve treatment planning, program design, and system management. What exactly is TCOM? Yeah, so the concept is simple, that if you ask any faculty member of any business school in the world, you know, how do I manage my business? They'll tell you, well, the first thing is you need to understand what your business is. And so the premise of TCOM is that in helping sector businesses, we're actually managing the wrong business. And so I was struck by work by a couple of economists, uh, Gilmore and Pine, who uh, wrote an article about what they called the hierarchies of offerings. They're describing different kinds of businesses and they basically inventoried five kinds of businesses and they described them as hierarchies because of the uh, how difficult it is to manage each marketplace. So yeah. the easiest kind of business to manage are called uh, commodities. So that's like raw materials, fruits and vegetables, oil, fruit oil, that kind of stuff, lumber. 
yeah. that's the easiest. Uh, you can take a commodity and produce something that's more readily accessible. Uh, so that's called a product. So the second type of business is a product. Uh, that's when you're, you know, so like I got up this morning and I had Cheerios for breakfast, right? That's a product. Oats is the commodity. Cheerios is the product. The next type of businesses are called services. And that's where you're hiring somebody to apply a product for you. So that's yeah. like a butcher or a dry cleaner or a restaurant is a good example of a service. The next example, the next type of business are called experiences. And that's when you're purchasing a memory. So probably the Disney Corporation might be the best known company that sells experiences, right? So um mm-hmm. And then the final and the most difficult kind of business to manage are called transformational offerings. And that's businesses in which the purpose of the business is to help people change their life in some fundamental way. So we would argue in our work that the problems that we have in healthcare and in social services is that we're managing services, we're managing paying people to spend time with people when what we're actually engaged in is a transformational offering, that we're actually, the business is to help people change their lives in some important way. And that has fundamental implications for how you think about and design the system. So the primary premise of TCOM is we need to learn how to manage personal change and not manage how much time do you spend with somebody. So, cause that's how, you know, every public behavioral health system in the world pay yeah. therapists to spend time with people they serve. That's not actually the work. The work is not spending a 50-minute hour with somebody. The work is helping that person change their life. So what we're about is trying to change that. Right, so that's right. the transformational and transformational collaborative outcomes management. The collaborative comes from uh, systems uh, work. So the challenge that we have in systems, particularly well, almost every system, but there's a lot of different people involved. There's multiple parties involved, and that creates uh, complexity. Um, there's two types of systems. There's complicated systems, and there's complex systems. And a complicated, they're, they're similar in the sense that both have a lot of moving parts, and both the only way you get them to work is to get all those component parts working together. Mm-hmm. So a complicated system would be like an airplane. You know? So you can actually engineer an airplane now to fly itself. You can get a car to drive itself because it's a complicated system, but we've learned how to get every component part communicating with each other. So if you are landing in a plane, uh, you know, you notice that the wing, the uh, wing flaps are coordinating with the speed of the plane are coordinating with the um gyros that are measuring the position of the plane to get the plane in the exact right position at exactly the right speed so they can land the plane. The only way the plane doesn't crash is if those components are in constant, perfect communication with each other. That's a complicated system. In human services and human serving systems, it's complex because, you know, frankly, wing flaps don't have bad days. You know, wing flaps never say it's not my job. You know, wing flaps are 100% predictable because they're machines. And yeah. the helping sector, you're dealing with people and people are not 100% predictable. So there's uh, systems work has said there's only two strategies that offer any hope of managed complexity. And that's either a hierarchical solution or a collaborative solution. So probably the best known hierarchical solution that works pretty well for managing complexity is the uh, military. 
So if you've ever wondered why it's so important for soldiers to always follow orders. In fact, from the moment of showing up after you've enlisted, the, the armed forces will teach you to follow orders. That's the number one thing. And you yeah. might wonder why. Well, the reason for that is that's how you stay alive in a battle because the battle is organized from the top. And if you're not following orders, nobody knows where you are and you could actually get killed by friendly fire. So following right. orders is how, and the, the, the armed forces is that keeps the most people alive wins. And so that's the goal, right? So that's why it's so important. The uh, problem is that the only way a hierarchical solution to complexity works is if there's a single line of authority. But in healthcare or in social servicing, you know, in the helping sector, there's not a single line of authority. In fact, you almost invariably have at least three parties. You have the payer, you have the provider, and then you have the person receiving the help. And right. sometimes you have even more than that. And as soon as you have that circumstance, you know, people don't have to do what their doctor tells them to do. And providers are always in conflict with, conflict with payers about things, right? And so frequently, you know, Medicaid or uh, government paying payer sources try and force people to do what they expect them to do. And they look at compliance and other kinds of strategies to create a hierarchical system, but it just doesn't work. And so the only remaining strategy that's shown any impact on successfully managing complexity is collaboration. And that's when you're, that's the shared visioning piece. That's bringing everybody to the same point. Right. So right. the idea behind TCOM is that you want to manage personal change, but the only way to do it in a complex system is through collaborative processes, is getting everybody on the same page. So what we do in our group is we start with teaching people how to, you know, helpers and the people they help to get on the same page with understanding what's going on in that person's life, because that's where you start all helping sector work. Um, and then where do you go from there? So we do a lot of uh, consensus-based assessment processes because that's a consensus process that's managing complexity. So I'll just give you a simple example from my own life to talk about. This is a healthcare example. Yeah. So when I was um, about five years ago, I was out shopping with my wife and uh, I was bored. We were at a grocery store and I happened to notice one of those little um, blood pressure kiosks, you know, and so I thought, oh, I did nothing better to do. I'll go check my blood pressure. So right. I put my arm in there, push the button, 220 over 180. So oh, wow. if you know anything about blood pressure, that wasn't good news, right? So, so I th I'm thinking to myself, this thing's broken. Uh, and so we continued on. And, and so we got to a, a drugstore and they had another one. I said, well, it's, it's sort of my responsibility to see how bad that other kiosk was because I should let the grocery store know because they're giving people false results. So I put my arm in the kiosk. It was 220 over 180. So I was like, uh oh, mm -hmm. So I, of course, went to the my doctor. They sent me to the eMERGE, as you might imagine. As a long story short, I got diagnosed with hypertension. But this is what my doctor did. So he didn't, he, he sat me down. I said, John, you know, we've got this equation. It uh, can predict exactly how long you're likely to live. And I can put in characteristics of you, and it'll predict how likely you are to die in the next five years. And so I put in your age and your gender and your weight and your blood pressure. 
And this equation said you have about a 60% chance of being dead in the next five years. If we lower your blood pressure down to this level, the, the equation would predict 30%. If we bring down your blood pressure down to 120 over 80, the equation would predict about a 5% chance of you dying in the next five years. So what would you like to do? So you can, you can imagine what I chose to do, right? So he didn't say you have hypertension, you, here's your prescription, go take it, right? He took the time for me to get on the same page as he in terms of understanding the functional implications of my condition. And so I'm not the best patient, but I have been just about 100% compliant on my blood pressure medication for the past five plus years because I understand the implications of that process. So the idea of a consensus-based assessment is the fundamental of person-centered care. So person-centered care comes out of uh, a uh, white paper by the Institute of Medicine in about 2001, I think, that uh, called Crossing the Quality Chasm, and it inventoried all the different problems with the healthcare system in the U.S. at that particular time, um, which were legion, uh, which, quite frankly, in 2020 are not different. Um, and they suggested one of those, the solutions to that is person-centered care. And the definition of that is making people full partners, equal partners in their healthcare. And so that's the same concept, right? That is in fact consensus-based processes. So we take that kind of collaborative piece very, very seriously because we think that's a fundamental to good healthcare, but we also think yeah. it's the fundamental to good system management as well. Right, right. Yeah, and then, you know, the, the other complication there is also outcomes. So, you know, um, when I look at the healthcare system, um, there are a lot of segmentation within the healthcare, as you say, you know, payers, providers, and the patient um, attitudes and, and incentives and all those complications, but also uh, to manage the system, uh, perhaps reduce the complexity, they do look at behavioral health and physical health uh, as separate things altogether. Right, which is, and, of course, naive. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, from a payer perspective, I could never understand this because, we, you know, data will clearly tell us that if you have behavioral health issues and if you if you proactively intervene with them, you have a high chance of, um, you know, stopping the patient uh, progressing to uh, more uh, complicated physical health issues in the in the future. Uh, but we don't look at it that way. So. Right. So, you know, this goes back to, you know, the, the way that you're thinking about this is the outcome for an individual um, is a very complex multifactorial outcome. And it requires a lot of different actions, a lot of different, um, you know, uh, maybe focus areas. And as you say, these decisions are made by potentially different parties and different people who have a very segmented view as to what they're trying to accomplish. And that, you know, I, I argue that that is a big part of the healthcare cost yes. uh, that we currently have in the system, right? I, I would agree with you. I'll, I'll actually can give you an example from our work that's very consistent, I think, with what you're saying. So we're consistently now beginning to find, because we have these very large data sets, because we do this kind of consensus-based work with a large number of people. Uh, but what we're finding is that actually 
effective, uh, you know, well-being, establishing well-being, having people be healthy, um, is not so much about eliminating their needs. It's not really about eliminating their symptoms. It's oftentimes teaching them how to live with their needs to make the functional implications of those challenges less and less. So most people, for instance, with diabetes, learn how to live with their diabetes, not eliminate their diabetes, right? Same thing with depression or bipolar disorder. Same thing with a lot of chronic conditions. It's not really about eliminating that disease or disorder. It's about teaching people how to find uh, a ways to be successful despite that. And so what we're finding actually, it's creating meaning in people's life is one of the most fundamental aspects for positive health outcomes, uh, because that's what motivates people who have a sense of some purpose in their life are better able to do the kinds of the things they need to do to minimize the functional implications of the challenges that all of us face. You know, every single one of us has needs. The question is what impact do those needs have on the rest of our lives? And the way you manage that is not to eliminate the need, you know, because frequently you can't. You teach people how to create purpose and manage the need so that it doesn't have adverse impact. Right, yeah. But that's not really and, how people look yeah, at outcomes, yeah. right? In the, in the field, I mean, those, we almost don't use the word outcomes because it's so misused. And I mean, you'll have people talk about quote of <laughs> outcome as, is lowering cost, you know, bullshit. I mean, so that's not that's not legit, right? So that's just a that's just living the service system uh, myth uh, with a transformation system. So that, and when we talk about outcomes, we truly only mean people being better, you know, people being their better selves, you know, people changing their lives in some important way, not all the other things that people use the term outcomes to describe. Yeah, I mean, that's the only outcome that really matters, right? right? So you could, you know, going back to your hypertension example, uh, you could say, you know, taking medication X as opposed to medication Y, you can bring it down to 150, 160. And yeah, that is an outcome, but it may not have any impact right. um, at, the, at the end of the day. And, and you have taken it much further than that. So, you know, in a recent paper, um, you know, looking at entrepreneurial skill building in rural ecosystems. So this, this you know, uh, goes to a more, a higher level, I should say, which is really measuring uh, the individual's happiness. And happiness does require not only, you know, control of disease, uh, but also the ability to to, to define and, and uh, do things that you want to do. Yes, I, I think that's really um, important. So, yeah. Well, actually, I just had a conversation with a group. Right, I had a yeah. conversation with a group in South Africa who's uh, trying to do a pan-African initiative to uh, for entrepreneurship, and and we we were all in agreement that actually being uh, gainfully employed is a population health challenge it's because that's really how you having that meaning, having that income, that actually it predicts all sorts of health outcomes. So anything we can do to help people get and stay gainfully employed and grow that actually has significant positive impact on population health. 
Yeah, so, and I think our current systems don't allow us really, right, to to look at it um, holistically yeah. that way. I mean, this is, these are all decisions made by different entities, funded by different entities. And if the, I mean, uh, you know, at, at some level, even the individual doesn't have a holistic view as to what he or she could do. And they might be tactically treating certain symptoms that that seems to crop up. But at the end of the day, unless you can show an overall lift in utility and happiness, it wouldn't really matter. Absolutely right. right. So that's what, how we define integrated care is integrated at the individual level. So I'm, I mean, I can't tell you how many meetings I've sat in on my career on integrated care. and Half the time, it's people about uh, pretending that it's about different professionals learning to talk to each other. But that's not really what it's about. It's about <laughs> creating healthcare systems that actually respond to the whole individual, not pieces and parts of that individual as if they were all functionally separate. Right. So healthcare in this context is a larger, um, larger concept. Uh, you know, it seems like that's the way that you're approaching it. Uh, healthcare is not, at least in the U.S. system, uh, we think of healthcare. I think you know, sort of taking taking care of diseases after diseases actually show up. Right. <laughs> and uh, you know, the, the whole manufacturing industry. Um, uh, is designed for that, um, and the, the whole healthcare provider system is really focused on that. Um, but you know, we're in a in a changing regime where some of the risk is now transferred from the payer to the provider, and I think that has a beneficial effect, at least from a provider perspective, to look at the individual and say, you know, what should we be doing to, to bring this individual to a higher level of not just health, but also happiness and all the, all the things that go around. Yes, I do think there's some positive movement in that regard. Um, I think it's still kind of hamstrung by the business models we use. For instance, you know, HMOs had that vision, right? A health maintenance organization was not about treating disease, it was about stimulating health. But the problem was that those things were contracted on an annual basis. So the person paying the HMO would pay them by year per member per month. And so all that did was incentivize people to contain costs because you can't prevent most health challenges in a one-year time frame. There's no point. So you could spend a lot of money on a smoking cessation program or a, or a fitness program and you would not see any cost benefit from that in a one-year cycle. So the business model defeated the theory of that particular approach and made it just a cost containment fiasco. Um, so I think we, right. we have made progress. And I think there are a number of provider organizations that really are integrating and really are trying to be uh, working with the full person. Um, uh, but there are lots of challenges that we have to work through with the business models that support those organizations because they're still rather flawed. And as you know, I mean, the, the, yeah, the yeah. pandemic has exposed kind of the challenge of a employer-based health system because if you have a pandemic and a large number of people lose their job and they lose their health care, and then you have a bit of a fiasco if the problem is a health care crisis. So 
um, it sort of exposes the lack of logic in an employer-based uh, healthcare system that very, very few countries uh, use anymore. So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you have another paper, John, level of care decision support, um, level of care decision algorithms uh, for, for child and adolescent needs mm-hmm. and strengths. Could you say a little yeah, bit Yeah, so the that? way we approach decision-making, so we really think of TCOM as doing person-centered decision-making, that you're trying to make all the key decisions informed by the best interest of the person. So um, among the most important decisions within a system, because it has significant um, restrictiveness implications, so personal freedom and rights implications, but it also has cost implications, is the decision about level of care. So, you know, how intensive is the intervention? So um, we have set up models where we have algorithms that, where you can look at a pattern of presenting needs and say, with this type of person, with this level of complexity in their multiple needs and multiple dimensions, they require this level of intensity of their intervention. So we've had quite a bit of luck, um, success around the world in terms of implementing decision models using algorithms uh, that allow uh, systems and practitioners to get the right person to the right type of intervention at the right time. That's really what those are about, is doing it in a person-centered way, because we think this is where systematic racism kind of gets in the way of the system. Um, so we, so yeah. for instance, lots of people use uh, prior service receipt as an indicator of the need for future receipt. But we know there's all sorts mm-hmm. of disparities and disproportionalities in the metric of service receipt. So if you use that metric, did you receive this service or not, you're embedding in your predictive model and your decision-making model all of those biases, and you're actually then institutionalizing those biases, and that is, in fact, the definition of institutionalized racism. So our approach moves away from that because you're really making your decisions not based on things that we did to people, but on what those people need at this particular moment in time. So it's a a very different way of approaching it. That's awesome. No, I was just going to say there was a, I saw something recently, uh, there was a, a healthcare system in New York that has, uh, that had an AI system implemented that, you know, that would predict the level of care required uh, based on the patient's characteristics. And it systematically underpredicted level of care requirements for uh, African-American patients. Okay. That's because that's what they're and, doing. They're using yeah. service receipt in their algorithm. That's exactly the exactly right. Right, right, exactly. So if you use historical observations and, and make historical observations as, a, as the only way to predict the future, you're basically perpetuating whatever issues existed in yes. history. Uh, so, you know, kind of naive AI systems in that fashion could also be a problem. Absolutely right. I mean, predictive analytics, even precision medicine runs that risk uh, if it's not done thoughtfully and it's not done from a person-centered perspective. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and you know, the other issue obviously is, you know, patient has not only the, the need for physical intervention for diseases, 
but also that intervention has to be multifactorial, yeah. right? So you have a paper on uh, pediatric uh, inflammatory bowel disease um, and, you know, looking at the, the disease complexity as well as the psychosocial needs of the patient uh, and how that could, um, you know, that could have a better path for IBD treatment. Could you talk a little yeah, bit Yeah, so about I think the, the idea behind that, so that's the work with med surge kind of patients. And so there's the Intermed, which is uh, actually comes out of collaboration with a group in Europe, uh, the Intermed Foundation. So it's come way back yeah. in the day. Um, so the idea there is that, yeah, I mean, so first I'll give you a story from my own. My son had open heart surgery when he was uh, an infant. And after his surgery, yeah. we were allowed to take him home two days after his surgery. He was in a room with another baby who actually had to stay in the hospital for over two weeks. Uh, and the difference was because of the needs of the parents. Uh, so my wife and I at the time had very little needs. We we're pretty sophisticated consumers of healthcare. We we're on board with what was happening. We could follow the home care uh, protocols. And so therefore, it was safe for us to take our child home much, much earlier than a different circumstance. So the needs of families has all sorts of implications for the effective care of children. And if you are only looking at the child's disease status to make your decision making, it's going to be flawed. It's, you're going to make mistakes because of the complexity of the of the home environment and it impacts uh, health. So I think that translates also into um, adult uh, circumstances as well, the more complex things, the, the social environment, the physical environment has implications for all sorts of things. Like one of the problems we have in Kentucky is we have food deserts. You know, we have areas that simply don't have access to fresh uh, fruits and vegetables because there's no grocery store for miles and miles around. People are all spread out and they can't really get those. So they end up eating fast food. They end up eating the kinds of food products you can get at a dollar store or equivalent. And they end up with the challenges of obesity and hypertension and diabetes that comes from dietary decisions that are restricted by their uh, food resource environment. So it really, if we're going to be successful, we really have to look at things broadly and, and embrace the complexity. Yeah. And you have a term here, um, you call it community yes. metrics. What, what so does it mean? Historically, um, the measurement theory that's used for um, the measurement of, quote, soft um, metrics. So a hard metric would be the count of the number of things or something like that. But if you want to measure depression, that's a soft. Or if you want to measure well-being, that's a soft metric. So the, the measurement of those kind of soft or subjective kinds of things comes actually from the field of psychology. And the measurement theories, there's a couple of them, but they're all embedded under the umbrella of psychometric theory. Um, and they come out of a, a logical positivist tradition so, and logical positivism is the uh, theory, uh, I'm sorry, the philosophy of science that was around in the turn of the 20th century. Um, and so these things were all invented pre-computer and they have this assumption that you're divining some truth. And the way you measure 
something is you ask a bunch of related questions and then you add them up. And the way you evaluate mm. that measure is the correlation of those items to each other. And that was done because it was a computational convenience. It was using the general linear model and so forth. And so it's created these measures where you have to ask a lot of questions in exactly the same order to measure something. And that's actually not how you do it in real world practice. So you don't learn about somebody by forcing them to ask questions in an order that you predetermine, right? The way you learn about somebody is you have them tell their story. So, so Communimetrics yeah. is designed to be a measurement of a story. And so the, the idea behind it is, you know, that if you're a helper, the first thing you do is hear somebody's story. But, you know, I, I don't know. Do you have kids, Gil? Yeah, so I do, yeah. yeah I don't yeah, know if you I have the same one. experience uh, I have, but my kid's story of their school was always a little bit different than the school story of my kids, right? So you've got these <laughs> multiple storytellers. And the job of helping is you have to combine these multiple stories into a single story. And although every story is different, if every story was different, there'd be nothing we could do to help. So as you are listening to people's stories and you're combining storytellers, that storyteller might be a, you know, it might be the blood pressure kiosk at the, uh, at the <laughs> drugstore, right? I mean, there's multiple storytellers. You pull the stories together, you come up with a single story and you're looking for common themes of the story. So Communimetrics is about identifying and measuring the common themes of people's stories that are relevant for decision-making in helping sectors. So we have a bunch of different communometric measures. They are extremely widely used and people don't really know so much about them because we don't, we give everything away. So everything is free. So um, the most commonly used uh, version of a communometric measure is called the CAMS, the Child and Adolescent Needs and Strengths. And so just to give you a sense of their spread, this year, yeah. about 80% of all kids in the United States in either child welfare or public behavioral health will have a CAMS as a part of their care. So it's really commonly used. And they work really well because it, they're essentially like a closet organizer for providers, for, for helpers, that you listen to the stories, you're listening to these common themes, and then you're organizing it. But then it takes it the next step because psychometric measures because I'm, I'm sure everybody's listening this podcast has seen the traditional psychometric measure using a likert scale they're called likert l-i-k-e-r-t and it's a rating like typically it's a five-point rating from agree completely to disagree completely or it's a severity or a frequency kind of rating and you use this very seldom you know seldom known that kind of stuff these frequency and severity um those things end up creating arbitrary metrics. So there's a great article in Psychological, sorry, an American Psychologist, I think it's in 2010 maybe, uh, by Jacquard and Stanton about the arbitrary nature of, uh, of psychometric measures. So you have a psychometric measure like the, probably the most widely cited measure of all time is the Beck Depression Inventory. So you could get a 17 on the Beck Depression Inventory. How is that different than a 13? Well, you, you know, a 17 is worse than a 13, but you don't know what it means, right? We could raise him back from the dead and he couldn't tell you what the difference between a 17 and a 12 actually means because it's arbitrary. So the a communometric measure, because it's designed from a communication perspective, because I'd argue the only reason you're using any metrics at all 
in a helping sector is to communicate. So you're trying to communicate though with everybody. So you want to have meaning in everything you do because meaning is fundamental to communication. So the levels of each item translate immediately into action because the concept is the only reason you're listening to people's stories. The only reason you're listening, you're identifying these common themes is to figure out what you might do to be helpful for them in that context. So you're listening to stories and you can actually convert using the immunometric tool. You can convert your understanding of the story into a plan of action by prioritizing their needs and strengths into these action levels. So you don't actually need to score yeah. a communometric measure to know what it means. It is in fact fully meaningful in its profile. You can score it. There's a bunch of different ways you can score it, but you don't have to um, because it means something. So to give you yeah. just a rough example, the yeah. needs have a zero, no evidence, no need yeah. for action. One is watchful waiting prevention, you know, it's assessment or monitoring. Uh, a two is action and a three is immediate or intensive action. So, so that's how it's designed to work. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, it reminds me of um, the, the complexity we have in pharmaceuticals of measuring pain. You know, so mm -hmm. if you have a pain drug. Uh, what right, right. scale? What does it mean? And, right. you know, <laughs> and it's going to be different for everybody, right? There's a different, do people have different thresholds. So every so our attitude is every single measurement phenomena is in fact ipsodic, and all that really matters is do we need to do something about it? So that's right. That's right. Yeah, and you know this this kinds of it leads into um, mental health. You know, how do you determine the need for mental health service? Right. You know, what, how, how do you, what do you measure? Yeah. How do you determine uh, the need? Um, so well, I think actually that, that? Uh, so I had a, a, a career mentor, a guy named Ken Howard, who sort of, you might say, was the father of outcomes management. But he used to say to me, you know, John, everybody actually should be able to get a annual mental health consultation. I mean, we do that with every other organ system that you can imagine, why don't we do that with the brain, right? So, so I think you don't want a threshold to have for people who just want to talk to somebody to see whether or not they have a need. I think once you, once you get that consultation, you'll discover a lot of people are more like worried well than they actually need the health services. But if they have a concern, they should be able to talk to somebody about that. So I think the, the first threshold is very, very low. Um, but you know, really to go ongoing mental health treatment, you really have to have something to treat. And so that would be, I would say you need an actual need in a mental health uh, area. You need to have an actual level of depression or an actual level of anxiety. So in other words, that depression or anxiety has to be having an impact on your life before you consider getting treatment for it. So I think you do want this kind of consultation, a mental a wellness check, if you will, uh, for everybody. I don't see why yeah. we would exclude people from that. Um, but uh, once you get past that and we're gonna invest pooled resources, uh, I think that it might be important to have a threshold. And I think really the functional implications, you know, do we need to do something about this because it's getting in the way of your uh, living is really the threshold. Yeah, I mean, we, we do a lot of measurements uh, on the physical health side. So, right, so your blood sugar, your cholesterol, uh, your blood pressure, right. you know, all those things are from a preventative perspective is continuously measured. Now, you know, with, um, with technology now, you could wear things on your body that can transmit that real time yep. on a continuous basis. 
but on the mental health side, um, I guess, you know, we only think of intervening when there is something, you know, that really shows up on the radar. And what you're suggesting is if we have preventative uh, measurements and maintenance, just like we do on the physical health, perhaps uh, that is the... Yeah, that, that would be my take on it. That's probably the, the most effective. Um, yeah, I use my Fitbit all the time, right? And I, you know, monitoring my steps and my sleep and my uh, uh, resting heart rate has been extremely good for me. I've lost the 30 pounds and reduced my resting heart rate by 15 beats per minute. So, so I mean, using data really can help you uh, get better. And we don't really have any equivalent for that at the moment in mental health. I don't see one on the horizon. I don't see a Fitbit installing a mood ring kind of technology anytime soon. So I think, I think, I think it's complicated. Yeah, it's so I think uh, talking to somebody is really the, uh, still the best way to kind of get a grasp on it. We're, we're exploring ways that people can yeah. kind of talk through it with themselves, right? Is there a way to create a, let me think about this with myself or with somebody who cares about me uh, to see whether or not I need to do something, you know, so that there might be some things about that. You're, you're seeing a number of those kinds of strategies popping up online. I think those offer some, some potential. Yeah, it's, um, I haven't um, really studied this or thought a lot about it. Um, Google has, um, you know, something that you can, um, you know, put in the eye that, that measures blood sugar um, continuously. You can, you can obviously measure pulse rate and blood pressure, uh, things like that. So I wonder in the future, there might be, you know, some sort of a multifactorial mm -hmm. thing that that is using proxies, you know, physical health related proxies in combination uh, could inform, um, you know, potential mental yeah, health I issues. I think that's possible. But I, I do think at the end of the day, Gil, that we're going to have to always put on the back end of all those metrics, we're going to have to put a community metric decision model, right? Because at the end of the day, you know, when I look at my steps and I look at my, my heart rate and, and sleep and so forth, I have to decide do I need to do something about this or not? That's not the same metric, right? It's, a, it's an extrapolation yeah. from those metrics. It's a way of looking at the full story and then deciding what do I need to do? So we're quite interested in how do you help helpers and how do you help people kind of install that uh, communometric decision logic on the back end of the way they're collecting information about their own stories? Because at the end of the day, you still have to, decide, do I keep an eye on this? Should I be a little bit worried? Do, do I need to do something about it? Oh my goodness, should I go to the doctor now? So, so I saw my blood pressure when I saw it twice. I thought I need to go to my doctor now, right? That was a three you know, on the, um, hypertension in my mind, in my communometric uh, model of decision-making. Yeah, we did some work for a mental health organization recently and you know, even simple things like mm -hmm. living alone, um, you know, has a predictive power uh, as to, you know, what interventions yeah. might be needed. So, so it's unclear to me that, you know, even very easily observable metrics, are we using that systematically uh, to, you know, to help uh, patients, um, but in healthcare, you know, till you become a patient, you know, it's less of an, uh, less of a focus. And, 
you know, hypertension and type 2 diabetes is probably 50% of yep. healthcare costs, which yep. is an enormous amount. And uh, those are potentially preventable diseases, right? And they may be connected with the mental Absolutely. health of the patient too. Um, and so, so you know, for, for whatever reasons, it doesn't appear that the payers are mm-hmm. looking at it that way. I want to also ask you in closing, John, you moved from a very urban area in Chicago to, to Kentucky. I don't know the population of Lexington, but uh, Kentucky as a whole, um, what is your, you know, if you were to contrast um, Chicago to Kentucky, what do you see um, as the major Yeah, I think the, um, there's the geographic spread in Kentucky is probably the biggest challenge. So, uh, what happens in Chicago, there still can be challenges. And Chicago has some significant um, disparities right there, but it's like one block to the next, actually. So it's all kind of both visible and it's all kind of um, yeah. not that hard to get from one place to the other. I mean, you do have situations where you might have to take three buses or something like that. So it's a little bit challenging. So there's a the ability to... Um, manage things is a little bit enhanced by the geography of an urban area. Uh, that being said, uh, the density of the urban area is a real challenge in terms of uh, things spread. And that's not just viruses, that's also like violence and that, those kinds of things. So things spread a lot easier because people are a lot closer to each other and so forth. Uh, Kentucky is sort of spread out. I mean, so Lexington is sort of a so I would put Lexington, Kentucky, um, Austin, Texas, and Nashville, Tennessee as kind of similar places. They're sort of um, small town yeah. urban university towns that are sort of like hipster haven, you know. So, uh, so that Lexington itself is kind of different than the rest of the state. I think the real challenges in Kentucky are in eastern Kentucky, uh, which has been decimated by the coal industry. Um, both the success and the failure of it. Um, first, the success decimated by creating massive amounts of problems with black lung and other sorts of health problems, secondary to the um, abysmal um, uh, health challenges of working in the mines. Uh, and then, of course, coal is collapsing and about ready to uh, go the way of the buffalo as, a, as an industry. Um, and that's created new problems. And so there's a major... Uh, migration of young people out of Eastern Kentucky. And so figuring out how to create new uh, business opportunities there that don't involve coal, I think is the challenge. So that's sort of a unique place uh, in that sense. And and so that's a big part of where most of the health disparities in Kentucky come from. So, Yeah, yeah. It's, um, you know, what, what that illustrates, though, is that, you know, the one size fits all idea, um, you know, from, um, from, from the macro perspective, we can come up with uh, models and, uh, and equations that are generalizable, but it doesn't really work if you take right. it to a specific environment, right? Um, it has its exactly, own exactly unique right. features. So we're a big believers within the, the PCOM work of... Uh, what Gilmore and Pine called uh, mass customization. So that you're trying to, because you can't really mass produce 
uh, these sorts of approaches because that's just treating everybody exactly the same as you point out so wisely. That's simply not true. Somebody living and, you know, going into the hollow to get their groceries at the dollar store in, in eastern Kentucky is going to be a little bit different than somebody who's living in uh, the south side of Chicago. Um, and they have different needs and they have different contexts and they have different historical barriers to uh, to healthcare, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So um, um, you just have to be different. So at the same time, you have to learn from each other, right? And so you can't do total individualization because that just simply doesn't work. So because there's no way that you can individualize yeah. things. So if, if truly you could individualize, that would mean you'd learn nothing from anything you ever did, right? So we don't help people based on how they're different. We help them based on how they're the same. And so you're looking for those common elements. And so that's why we're big believers in mass customization as the business model in uh, the helping sector. Because that's you know being sensitive to differences, but still building yeah. on similarities. So. Yeah. So, uh, final question, John. So, in, in if you think about uh, population health, uh, what's one factor that you believe has the biggest impact on population health? Is it education? Is it economics? Is it nutrition? I guess you know it depends on the environment you are in. But what is your view as to if you were to invest into improving one factor that will have a education. substantial impact on the Education is the be? most powerful variable in the equation because um, that leads to employment yeah. and other kinds of stuff. Um, so I, I, that's where I would, if I were, if I had yeah, limited dollars and I wanted to help the, um, the population health globally, I would invest in education. I would, uh, in the U.S., I'd move away from a property tax-based uh, educational funding system because that, that again, is institutionalized racism because uh, poorer communities, which are typically more commonly uh, people of color, uh, tend to have less property yeah. taxes, lower property taxes, uh, and therefore they have less funded schools and that's just built into the fiber of our education system and so people with money move to places where the schools are good that means the property taxes are high and so long as that continues in our country we'll continue to have these massive disparities so until we fix that uh, we're going to have problems yeah Thanks for uh, spending time with me, John. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me, and good luck with you as well. Stay safe and be happy. Take care. You too. Thank you.